Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna from the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. It's June 2023 and today's episode is all about writing historical fiction. It's also got the bonus of featuring two extraordinary women from right here in Norwich and Norfolk. A few weeks ago, we were fortunate to host a packed out event with writers Victoria McKenzie and Sally Ann Lomas, who brought to life the stories and legacies of two of Norfolk's most famous women, Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp. NCW's Head of Programmes and Creative Engagement, Holly Ainley, caught up with Victoria after the event to discuss her debut novel, For Their Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain, the joys and pitfalls of researching historical periods, and how you communicate this to contemporary readers. This insightful discussion also covers the blurry lines between fact and fiction, the moral responsibility of authors when writing about real historical figures, and what term historical fiction actually encompasses, how it's used by the publishing industry, and what it really means to authors. It's especially fascinating to hear Victoria explore the language of historical fiction and the challenge of writing about other writers, how their language and style became part of the way she chose to tell their stories. So now, I'm delighted to hand over to Holly in conversation with Victoria McKenzie. Victoria McKenzie, Vicky, welcome to the Writing Life podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, we're delighted to have you. Um, Thank you. So you are both a poet and a novelist, and I might say historical novelist for the purposes of today's conversation, because the, the subject we're here to get into today is historical fiction. Um. Like all subgenres of general fiction, historical is this really rich and varied area that encompasses all kinds of styles of writing. And of course, it also intersects with other genres. So we've got historical crime fiction, historical romance, um, and then we've got sort of his commercial fiction that's set in historical times and perhaps where your work sits historical literary fiction. Now, I realise that's a lot of names and terms to start with, so I thought that that's, a, that's actually a good place for us to start with, with the term. And it's, it's one of those labels that we see, historical fiction, when we go into a bookshop or we search online, you know, on an online bookshop. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, we know this is something that publishers have imposed, really, but is is that just to make fiction more commercially palatable or, or is it actually a useful term for readers? You know, what, what does it do, that term? I think it can be useful for readers, but as you've suggested, it's such a broad genre with all of these extra genres in, um, like romance and crime and so on, that it that it is a bit of a funny one. And I suppose readers will have particular tastes within that. And I also feel that perhaps um, you know, mentioned that maybe I fall under literary historical fiction, that I'd say pre-Hilary Mantel, I might just have been called literary fiction. And she mm. talks in her wreath lectures, which she did for the BBC in 2017, about how before she was writing her Tudor novels, if a literary novelist wrote a historical, so she gives the examples of um, Robert Graves writing I, Claudius, for example, but there's loads of other examples, you know, like John Banville wrote Dr Copernicus. Um, these weren't labelled as historical fiction, I don't think, they were just fiction or literary fiction. And 
in a way, I feel like Mantel opened the floodgates um, and she made writing historical fiction something that was almost more respectable, something that was that, that writers didn't mind having the label. So I feel if you'd asked people before then, what's historical fiction? I think I'd have said Jean Plady. You know, um, <laughs> the kind of like the series, um, you know, lots and lots of novels about historical figures that weren't necessarily mm. that accurate, that probably now would say was under the romance category. Um, so I feel, yeah, I, I'm not sure as a writer whether I find labels helpful. I'm pretty sure I don't. And I didn't intend to be a historical novelist. It's something that's just happened because of my interests going in particular directions and I don't think that I'll necessarily always write historical fiction either um so yeah it is a marketing tool and probably writers don't really think about it but I think for readers it can be helpful for navigating their way towards what they want to read um given how many thousands of books are published every year yeah, yeah, I think that's a very fair summary, but really interesting what you yeah, say about Hilary Mantel there and the kind of change in the term. But I I mean, you sort of touched on there that you don't feel um, that you, you have to kind of continue writing historical fiction forever. But I wonder whether the term or, or any of these kinds of terms do pigeonhole some authors, whether whether it's limiting sometimes? I suppose some authors might feel that way, especially if they've had like a very big success with a book. And then I can imagine that their editors would be very keen to replicate that success with something similar. You know, there's that sense of building on the readership, giving those readers, um, you know, something similar that they'd enjoy just as much. But to be honest, I'm not sure. I feel that writing a book is something so personal and is such an enormous effort that most writers are going to, you know, a lot of writers are just going to write what it is they're most excited to write next. I hope that's true anyway. Um, and so won't, you know, won't necessarily worry too much. I mean, I know, I guess, in, in commercial fiction, there's that sense of building a brand and so on. Um, but for me, I feel like my first novel's um, such a strange one that I, I don't really know how I can build a brand based on for my great pain. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't think I've got any more small, quirky novels about medieval mystics in me. Uh, I think that was a one-off. So I'll just, yeah, be following my heart for whatever comes next. <laughs> that's good although you know who knows maybe in 10 years time we'll be doing a podcast on medieval mystic fiction as <laughs> a whole new genre yeah and it was Victoria McKenzie who changed the landscape <laughs> I love that yeah <laughs> so so historical fiction um I think uh, as we're already alluding to here is an incredibly popular genre um and I think there's also a lot of historical fiction that gets adapted for, for screen. Um, I'm thinking really recently of Bernard Cornwell's The Last Kingdom series, um, Poldark even, yeah. <laughs> and of, of course, um, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, which was, there was an amazing um, BBC adaptation of. And uh, uh, what, what, Why do we think it's such a, a popular genre? What, what makes it so enticing? 
I think that what's interesting about historical fiction is you've got this wonderful frisson between looking at the ways that people are different from us now. So, you know, their sort of day-to-day lives, how they dress, how they, you know, get around the country, what their ideologies are and so on. But then there's also an enjoyment in thinking about all the ways that we're still similar to them. So I think that's, you know, that's something that's quite fun. You know, you're looking at like the machinations of the Tudor court and thinking, okay, well, it's a completely different world. You know, we're, we're not concerned with you know launching the reformation right now whatever but <laughs> at the same time you know it's about things that are, we're still are very interested in that are still playing out in politics now to do with you know who has the ear of the powerful um who who gets things done who's actually you know shaping the direction the country's going in those are all completely relevant to to contemporary society so I think it's that that kind of fuzzy space in the middle about how how are we like them and how are we not like them that makes historical um, so much fun to play around with. Yeah, something about sort of comparing our identities, <laughs> yeah, past and present. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and just just keeping it quite broad at the moment, I'm, <laughs> I'm particularly as I get older, interested to know um, what's makes historical fiction because it, I mean we're talking here about you know medieval times um, Tudor times but are actually you know to somebody born in the last 20 years are the, are the 1990s is that historical fiction? Yeah someone born in 1980 um, that thought's horrible but perhaps <laughs> if I was 17 years old right now perhaps I'd you know be thinking that the 1990s was the past and certainly because of the rate of change of technology um, there are plenty of things about the 1990s that would have to be explained by a novelist Um, you know in terms of like going around with your CD Walkman or you know um, (laughs) telephones that you have to put your finger in and and move a dial around you know these things have to be explained to today's teenagers we can't take those for granted. I just read um, Trespasses by Louise Kennedy, which is set in um, Northern Ireland in the 1970s. So I was thinking, is that historical fiction? Personally, because it's so close to when I you know, was actually alive and I don't think of myself as old, it's not <laughs> historical fiction. Um, but I guess the boundaries are always shifting. I mean, I've read some definitions of historical that it's, um, you know, fiction written more than 50 years ago, 50 years after the events occurred. Um, And but I'm aware that the 1970s is starting to creep into that territory, which just feels really strange to me. Um, I also find it weird to think that historical could be something an author writes from memory rather than research so Mm. um like elizabeth jane howard's cazalet series uh, you know draws on 1950s and i imagine that she was drawing on a lot of personal memory for that so that seems strange to think of that as historical as well i suppose it's it's um it's a bit of a fuzzy boundary and different people have different ideas about it yeah, and I suppose that speaks to what we were saying at the top there about um, how varied and how rich it is as a genre. Perhaps as well, there's a little bit of publishers getting to decide what's historical and what's not. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's with, true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, so let's focus in on your work now. Um, you've already mentioned that um, it wasn't historical fiction 
per se that that was the driving force between you choosing the particular narrative you did um I'm guessing it was the subjects and, and the story um so can you tell us a little bit about the book and and also how you came to this historical narrative yeah sure so um for thy great pain is um basically set in 1413 and it's the stories of two medieval women who really lived Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp and they tell their stories um, to the reader in first person in interweaving monologues um, so the book does dip back in time as, as they recall their childhoods and so on. What drew me to it as, as I said, you know, I, I didn't consciously think, right, I want to be a historical novelist. What period would be fun to write about? What I actually thought was I want to write a novel about Julian of Norwich because she was an anchoress and the idea of being an anchoress um, just fascinates me so much. So she lived in a single room attached to the Church of St Julian in Norwich, probably for around 30 years in the second part of her life. And she couldn't leave on pain of excommunication. She had to dedicate her life to prayer and contemplation in a single room. And I, I just found that such an extraordinary life choice and that seemed so counter to what most of us aspire to for our own lives in terms of um you know freedom to see the world um freedom to have a family and and have a home life um to you know go out and see our friends and you know I think we, we really value exposing ourselves to as much of the world as much life as possible so the idea of actively choosing to restrict your life to a single room um as an as an imaginative act really really drew me and that that's basically why I wanted to write the novel this anchoress experience I just suppose I thought that the challenge of setting a novel in a single room um would be really interesting challenge for a writer as well um and once I started to research Julian of Norwich's life I very quickly came across the figure of Marjorie Kemp who I hadn't heard of before and discovered that Marjorie like Julian had uh, visions of Christ. She was a mystic. She lived in uh, Norfolk, uh, 30 or 40 miles to the north in um, Bishop's Lynn, which is now King's Lynn. Um, but rather than being an anchoress, she was the mother of 14 children, a merchant's wife, and very much part of her community, working as an alewife and so on. So she she had such a different experience from Julian, even whilst they had so much in common and I think that kind of parallelism as a, as a writer was really appealing and I read both their books uh, Julian's Revelations of Divine Love, uh, Marjorie's The Book of Marjorie Kemp and these incredibly different personalities came through and so one of the large joys as a writer was setting these two voices together so yeah it was it was really very much first of all this anchoress experience and then discovering this incredible figure of Marjorie Kemp that that spurred me to to write this novel. Really interesting that you came you so you came at it through character but actually you know the time period and as we've talked about the sort of circumstances in which these characters lived um, that historical setting is so central to their story and to, to what shaped their character so I wonder once you started um 
exploring them and getting to know them, whether you then felt that the time period had a particular appeal, actually. It really did. So I'd never studied um, the medieval period before. So I, I got myself lots of books of social history and books about the lives of women in the medieval period, the lives of anchoresses in the medieval period. And and started to learn. And I really fell in love with this period. What surprised me was how, despite the 600 year gap, how immediate it felt to me. Um, It really felt like a very tangible time. I could really feel myself living in Norfolk at this time. Um, I think one of the things that's really important for almost all historical writers is thinking about how do you how do you convey that time period and I think one of the best ways of doing it is through the tangible through the sensory details so I really enjoyed researching um things like what they would have eaten and the sorts of sounds that their world was filled with so you know in the medieval period really the loudest sound they would have heard would have been the bells ringing out the hours of the day um but uh, you know apart from that it wasn't a particularly noisy world you have to remember it's like you know pre-industry um it wouldn't have been that much traffic you know people weren't even going around in you know carriages horse-drawn carriages or anything like that um mostly people traveled on foot or horseback so it was a much quieter world than ours um which I suppose appealed to me I live in the country (laughs) I'm not a city girl um but yeah and then thinking about um like the textures of the clothes they wore um what their furniture was like things like this I just I just found it a world that I felt I could step into and and give the readers just these small details to make it feel very tactile very real so that's one of the sort of key ways that I try to recreate that sense of the medieval world. Oh, it's so interesting that idea of kind of finding the tangible as your as your route. Um, I think um, we should stay on research. I think our listeners be really interested to hear more about um, the research process. I mean, you talked about you know getting at lots of books about the um, how it living as an anchoress and about the period but I mean where do you start was that you just went to the library and just did a google search or yes Um, google is very much the historical novelist friend um I was actually writing this book in 2020 during lockdown so there were certain avenues of research that just weren't available to me so I didn't travel I didn't go to Norfolk so I didn't go to Julian's cell or to to Lynn um and I couldn't go into archives either I couldn't go to the British library and you know look at manuscripts or anything anything so I I was restricted in that way but yeah I mean I suppose research doesn't scare me because I I have a PhD so um (laughs) I've already been scared (laughs) I've been through that terror um so I you know I I'm quite good at sort of quickly filleting which books are going to be relevant um you know which books look interesting um and so yeah so basically and there's so much online as well like there's amazing websites like medieval.net and you can basically put questions in um and you'll get these wonderful 
um, so useful short articles on things to do with medieval dress or medieval food or medieval periods and that was the kind of thing that I really you know found so fascinating um, you just think the gory oh, details yeah, yeah and like the kind of the stuff that is is real day-to-day living you know how did a woman cope with a period in 1413 yeah. um how interesting so I learned all about that and I you know I put some details in for Marjorie as she as she grows up and has to encounter you know becoming a woman so I I find all that small stuff um that you know that people really lived every day I find that really interesting yeah, I guess it's you say small stuff, but actually it's it's the stuff exactly exactly as you're saying that readers that you know us normal average people who weren't kings or knights of the realm or whatever can actually relate to. Yeah, exactly, and it's one of those things that I think helps make them the characters feel more immediate and to bridge that 600 year gap between them and us. It's one of the things that we feel that we have in common. You know, we all still have to cope with our bodily functions <laughs> and and so you've got all this research you know um and you've got all this nude knowledge but then how do you um how do you ensure that you you don't then overwhelm the reader you know wh- how is it that you know what to put in what to leave out I mean there's that sort of very that, that idea of the tip of the iceberg you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. just saying enough and I think you're making like a million tiny decisions about that with every sentence thinking you know what what do I give the reader here and and what's not relevant and what's not really contributing to the story but I just you know I find so fascinating it's really hard I think what helped me was that before I wrote For Thy Great Pain I'd been spending five years working on another novel called Brantwood about the Victorian art critic John Ruskin and so different as a process because Ruskin wrote over 200 books and pamphlets himself plus there are dozens and dozens of biographies and books about him academic works about him um you know so much secondary material it's letters and diaries that are available the the mountain of material to do with Ruskin is absolutely epic you know it's Everest whereas with For Thy Great Pain it was much more of a yeah, a small bump <laughs> because we know almost nothing about Julian's life, for example. We don't even know her real name. Um, so there, there was, you know, I, I could do reading about her revelations. I could, you know, read about sort of theological interpretations of her writing and I could read about women and anchoresses more generally, but there just wasn't that vast amount of material um, to cope with. And the same with Marjorie Kemp, you know, there's a there's a bit more autobiography in her own book. And so I could use that as a framework. So, we, you know, I know she had 14 children and so on. We know more about her than we do about Julian. But it, it was a much more manageable amount of research to cope with. And I think because I'd I really struggled with my Ruskin novel, with, with those questions that, that you're asking about. How do you know what to put in? How do you know what to give the reader? How do you know what what to keep back? And I feel I, I was trying to give the reader too much with Ruskin trying to you know share too much of my research to the detriment of story essentially so with For Thy Great Pain I try to put story and character and voice to the forefront and only use my research in ways that I felt were you know 
basically giving some nice texture to the story um, and in ways that I you know try to make quite unobtrusive um, so you know for example thinking about the things that they ate um, at one point I described Marjorie as having a blister the size of a gooseberry and then I had to research whether or not they had gooseberries in medieval England. <laughs> um, so, you know, li- little things like this, um, my research was was informing, but I was very conscious, as I say, of putting sort of character and voice and story to the forefront of that book. So would you say that that makes it less intimidating? I mean, are you finding the Ruskin book, which I think you're, you're writing now, is, is it intimidating? to be faced with that much historical information about a person? I think, yes, I was intimidated when I wrote the first incarnation of it. But I I feel less intimidated now because I am trying not to think too much about what Ruskin scholars or people who are very knowledgeable about Ruskin will think of the mm-hmm. novel. I'm trying to do basically what I did with For Like Great Pain, which is write a book that I want to read that gives me enormous pleasure as a reader. And so I'm trying to write the Ruskin book as the, Rus- the book about Ruskin that I would want to read, um, especially if I was coming to Ruskin without you know, a great deal of background knowledge. That's really who my ideal reader is. Someone who's heard of him might know a few things about him, but isn't a Ruskin expert. Because I think if you write with the expert in mind, as you say, it is intimidating mm-hmm. and you worry about getting every single thing right. And with Ruskin, you know, it is a novel I am imagining. So if I put him in a certain location on a certain day, because that's what the story needs, I'm very comfortable with that. But I'm aware that there'll be a, an expert somewhere who will you know, find the diary or the letter that proves that he wasn't there on that day. And that's, you know, that's really um, got to be something that I'm not worrying about anymore. You know, I'm writing something that I want to succeed as a novel, as a, as a work of art, basically, rather than as something that you know, has every single detail about Ruskin right to the letter. Yeah, and it's it's historical fiction after all, isn't it? It sounds like you have to kind of almost come through the research process and then move forward from it and find those spaces in between, perhaps, that you can occupy as a novelist. Yeah, absolutely. And just find um, the, the nuggets of research that stimulate my imagination and that mm. will bring Ruskin to life as a character on the page rather than thinking you know about the kind of scholarly background to him yeah and so so, I mean I'm sort of getting a sense of what you've you've learned from the from the process of writing quite two quite different stories but both what we'd call historical fiction and we're talking a lot about character here and and the challenge of of writing (laughs) real historical characters are there are there any other sort of challenges to that you know knowing that a person really existed because a lot of historical fiction isn't based on on real historical characters it's it's completely imagined yeah absolutely I think um I think it's important as a writer to ask yourself why you're writing about someone who really lived and I think it's you know worth thinking about the sort of ethical questions around that Mm. um because I mean, I just feel that sometimes 
readers do understand the contract that it that it is fiction but there are ways in which um something that's fiction can really influence the way a person's regarded their reputation for example so with Ruskin um you know he really fell out of fashion in the 20th century and has been represented in popular culture in ways that are I think quite unfair um to who he was as a person so I you know one of the motivations for me writing on Ruskin was um to emphasise the things that I think are interesting about him as a real person. Um, I wouldn't go as far to say that it's a sort of rehabilitation of Ruskin. He is a very complicated and flawed character. You know, he's not always likeable. He's not always relatable. But I think um, such a complicated character makes a really interesting study for a novel and that novels can do things for characters that other are the other you know sort of biographies or so on can't do because I am able to imagine you know his thought processes mm. I can imagine his conversations with friends and loved ones and bring out that that side of him um, and be quite empathetic towards him even if I'm disagreeing with some of the things that he thinks, for example, um, you know, some of his views are quite unpalatable um, to, you know, contemporary readers. So I feel that you know, fiction is, it's both, as I say, it's both made up and, and fictionalised and you can do what you want. But I also think you have a certain responsibility to that person if, if they were a real, real person if they really lived um you know I would hate to think you just think of yourself imagine in 150 years someone writing a novel about you and completely misrepresenting you you know it's um I don't know I'm waffling a bit now but (laughs) (laughs) no I think that's such an interesting question uh, point about the the ethics of being a historical novelist and I guess it becomes even more so when there are people still around who might have known the um, the character in question, or or the, the character themselves might might still be alive in some cases, um, and, and so would would you ever write about a real character who is um, a bit more in our recent history? I can't imagine it. I'm I'm not going to say no, never because. I I know I can't predict my own imagination, but I think I would find it inhibiting to write about someone either who was still alive, in which case there's loads of libel issues for one thing, or who had died not that long ago, or who had living descendants or people, you know, who would be around wanting to defend their reputation for example so I think just imaginatively I I wouldn't feel like I had free reign and I think that Mm. would stop me from really getting deep into some kind of imaginative project about a person so I think you know with Marjorie and Julian the enormous time distance was very helpful for that you know I didn't feel I had relatives to to answer to and I was conscious that I was essentially trying to represent both of them in a way that I felt was fair and empathetic and then with Ruskin he doesn't have any living 
descendants, certainly not close descendants, because he didn't have any children himself. Um, and I feel that I'm on his side more than other writers or filmmakers or so, or so on have been. Um, so I feel that that lets me free imaginatively as well to, to feel that I'm doing something that is, um, that is, yeah, that's on his side, that's being kind to him and that's, that that's part of my motivation for why I want to write about him. It's really, I'm just reflecting back on what you said about the how a historical fiction might actually influence um, somebody's reputation. Because thinking that if you'd never read, um, going back to Hilary Mantel again, you know, if you'd never read anything about the Tudors, and that was what you, I mean, you'd have a, <laughs> you'd have a pretty good sense of them because it was Hilary Mantel and, and she was, you know, brilliant. But um you you can kind of really influence um, somebody's perception of not just of the character but of a whole time period. You know, if you get details wrong, um. completely, yeah, completely. And I mean, her book is quite empathetic to mm. Thomas Cromwell, and. Yeah. I studied 16th century history at school and the way that I learned it was, you know, to massively simplify, Cromwell was the baddie and Thomas More was the goodie. Right. And, and I watched A Man for All Seasons with Paul Schofield as Thomas More. And when Thomas More, um, you know, is put to death because he refuses to recognise Henry as head of the church, I cry buckets. <laughs> absolutely buckets um but then when you read or watch wolf hall you know it's a very cold portrayal of more very cold and it's funny because my husband is scottish and he hasn't studied uh english tudor history at school so actually wolf hall is the first time that he's really learned about about these people so we have these uh, stupid mock arguments where I'm defending Thomas More and he's defending <laughs> Thomas Cromwell because we both have opposite <laughs> views of them um, and yeah it's a lot to do with fictional representation it's to do with A Man for All Seasons and, and Wolf Hall. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there we go it absolutely shows doesn't it that um, the, 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 the responsibility of a historical novelist. Um, so I want to come on to thinking a little bit about style now and, and language in historical fiction, um, particularly in For Thy Great Pain, how you might have used language um, to, to signify the period, you know, in more subtler ways. Yeah, so I, I've i written it in a, a kind of prose style that's a little bit odd. Um, just the, the grammar and the syntax is, is a little bit strange. And with both voices I really drew on the texts of the women themselves in terms of thinking about how to create that on the page so Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich is such a calm contemplative book um, it's very metaphorical it's, it's very um, full of, sort of calm detail and close observation so when I was creating Julian's voice um, I, I really leaned into that and thought about how she would be a great observer of the natural world, for example, and included a lot of detail like that in, in my novel. Um, with Marjorie, she has a much more chaotic voice. Um, her her novel, not her novel, Marjorie's autobiography is... Um, 
it was dictated to a scribe rather than written. So in some ways it's unfair to criticise because she didn't have the opportunity to read over and redraft mm. or structure it or anything. But it's um, it wanders all over the place, place in terms of chronology. Um, she repeats herself. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's not a great observer of, of the natural world. It's very much a book that's focused on her, her feelings, what she saw, um, her relations with her neighbours and community, her husband. Um, and you're talking about her visions, but a lot of it is to do with her interactions with um, clergy and other figures of authority and, you know, how they're always hounding her and trying to have her arrested. So, um I really enjoyed the contrast of the two voices of the two women and um, sort of took my lead from those in terms of creating the style of of the voices. Um, so and there's no there's no narrative in my novel. It's just the two women telling their stories to the reader. So it's yeah, each of their voices is is um, absolutely key to, to how the novel comes across. Um, and in terms of you know that I think that was really helpful in terms of thinking about how to avoid um, modern turns of phrase, because I was, you know, trying to inhabit these women and their worldviews, really trying to be in their bodies. So I think it that helped in terms of not accidentally using quite quite modern phrasing. Um, and I tried to keep my vocabulary obviously very much to things that they would know about. Um, yes, we talked about the gooseberry, the yes. list of the size of the gooseberry and whether <laughs> gooseberries existed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think I think it probably made my life easier in a way, not having a, a, a narrator, not having that kind of omniscient third person present in the novel, but just having these two women talking and telling their stories. Mm-hmm. And and your background is is writing poetry, and I think. Um, the book's been sort of praised for its for its rhythm and for its often sort of poetic feel. Do you do you think um, that was something that came very naturally to you, or do you think you also took that from from probably the writings of Julian? I'm thinking of more than Marjorie. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, there's not so much poetry to Marjorie. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was a combination of both. I imagine that what drew me to Julian's writing was the fact that, yeah, as you say, I'd written poetry for a long time. I, my PhD was studying poetry. Um, and then Julian is a fantastic literary stylist, not just a great theologian. So, um, you know, her her writing is very rhythmical, um, which is something I try to imitate. Um, she uses a lot of um, metaphor and very vivid, precise imagery. Um, so, for example, um, at one point in her visions, she sees a kind of devilish figure approaching her and she describes him as having red skin. But she says it's red, the colour of newly fired roof tiles. It's very, you know, very good mm. details. She's got a poet's eye there. So even 600 years later, we can very clearly see that terracotta red of, of this devilish figure's skin. So I feel like it's those um, really, you know, good close observations that make Julian's work, um, you feel like it's got that kind of density of, of poetry. Um, but then, I, you know, I took it further in some ways as well. So I did experiment with using 
line breaks and shaping the text on the page so that um, your lines sort of cascade down, for example. Or when Julian is in her anchorist cell and she's really feeling very claustrophobic, I repeat um, the phrase stone walls many times so that they form almost um, like bricks that run across the page and like block the page there's these two lines it's just stone walls stone walls stone walls stone walls so I really enjoyed using sort of basically poetic techniques like that to use the form and the appearance of words on the page to to add to the meaning yeah it's so effective as a reading experience as well um I um we, what we haven't touched on, and I think perhaps we ought to, is, you know, the, the very kind of in-your-face fact that this is a novel about two deeply religious women um, living in a, a, you know, a deeply religious society. And, and you're, you know, oftentimes um, historical fiction, you know, is writing about a time when you, there's no getting away from it. Um, it's so different to now in that everybody had religion you know so, so spirituality you, you can't get away from and I, I just wonder how you um, felt about kind of putting yourself into that world and that society you know I don't know if you, you have your faith today but it, it, even if you do it would be pre presumably very different to the way that um, it was kind of felt on a day-to-day -day basis back then yeah it's funny it just felt very intuitive to me and I didn't give the religious aspect an enormous amount of conscious thought and now that the book's out it's something I'm asked about so much more than I ever expected it's been really fascinating and I've had a lot of people assume um that I am religious um when I I don't come from a position of religious faith um and so that's been that's been quite a strange experience. Um, and just on Friday, I I did a reading at the Jesuit Centre in London. So, um, you know, there's been an enormous response from the religious community, and it's been a really positive response as well, which which I'm really you know so pleased about. It's funny, yeah. So I I'm not religious at all. Um, I do think most people have a spiritual aspect to their inner lives. You know, my first degree was philosophy and English, and I've always been interested in the big questions. And I just assume most people are. Why are we here? How should we live? What makes for a good life? Um, and I think I was just channeling that aspect of my inner life, essentially, um, when I was thinking about what mattered to these women and thinking about their religious faith. And it was, of course, conscious um, to write about religious subjects. Um, that, you know, these women's visions are absolutely essential to who they are. And as you say, in the medieval period, there's simply no getting away um, from religion. There were, you know, a small number of proto-reformation types but generally religion wasn't something that was particularly questioned um it was just part of day-to-day -day life so it was important to me to embrace that just as I embraced you know the muddy roads and eating of hot peace cods for me it was sort of um you know that that was all part and parcel of it um I I don't know yet I mean I I'm drawn to books about religious topics I suppose um which I can't really explain, given that I don't have faith. As a teenager, I loved novels about nuns. 
absolutely and I think that's what drew me to the Anchoress experience I love thinking about people who make these really extreme decisions for their life and who devote themselves to something to you know such an astonishing extent that it impacts all other aspects of their life um and I suspect that why I'm drawn to Ruskin is for a similar reason actually um not you know that, that he is incredibly religious but he's such a an idealist he has these very strong ideas about what makes for a good life and he's very critical of um victorian industrial capitalism for example um and he makes a lot of enemies along the way so i think yeah people who believe things very strongly i'm i'm really drawn to Mm, that's fascinating um well we're coming to the close of our conversation but I don't want to end without we've been talking quite a lot about examples of historical fiction in this conversation but do you have a favorite or some favorite historical novel (laughs) yes <laughs> this is a very easy question for me. So <laughs> I do. I love historical fiction. I'm not going to talk about Mantel because it's just too obvious. So I thought I'd mention a few um, novels that you know people do read but aren't as well known as Mantel. So my first example would be Barkskins by Annie Proulx, which Ooh. is a great big tome. It came out a similar time to The Overstory by Richard Powers, and it's very similar in that it's all about trees a bark skin is a a woodcutter and it's a huge epic novel and it begins uh, 17th century with uh, French migrants coming over to the eastern seaboard of America and essentially beginning to cut down America and Canada's trees and it spans um, centuries it comes pretty much up to the present day and I think Annie Proulx is an incredibly ambitious and interesting writer um it's one of those novels that you know jumps between characters and and through time and I think that can be very difficult when you get invested in a particular story and then you lurch forward um you know 50 years later but every single story within that novel is is fascinating so I think Barkskins is definitely up there that's a great Um, recommendation and the 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 feat of historical research which must have gone into that in order to span so many periods and centuries yeah exactly I mean I just yeah I you know I researched roughly the early 15th century but Annie Proulx basically researched like three or four hundred years (laughs) so it's it's a really tremendous feat um my other novel is quite different it's a very slim novel by the Scottish uh, novelist who's no longer with us, Ian Crichton-Smith, and it's called Consider the Lilies. And it's an exquisite slim novel about an old woman who is evicted from her home during the Highland Clearances. So we're talking sort of late 18th, early 19th century. And so it's um, on a, it's a real microcosm, you know, it focuses right down on one old woman's plight rather than the Annie Proulx, which is sort of hundreds of years worth of Eastern seaboard history. This is uh, so moving. And it's one of the things I think that historical fiction can do really well of taking a big event like the Highland Clearances when, uh, Highland Clearances when people were, um, evicted from the land so that landowners could put sheep which were more profitable and so many Scots um, were forced to migrate to Canada and America or to Australia um, 
you know, they were just burnt out of their houses. And it takes a big event like the clearances and just focuses on the impact on, on one, you know, elderly, forgettable old woman that history doesn't remember and, and shows the sort of impact on her personally it's remarkable it's so beautiful it's so sad yeah I, I think everybody should read consider the lilies oh gosh well I know what I'm doing straight after we've <laughs> conversation <laughs> thank you oh Vicky thank you so much but for those two recommendations we'll have to make sure that we put those names in the um text that goes with the podcast as well um but thank you as well thank you for talking to us about both about your book and about this beast that is historical fiction (laughs) that's my pleasure it's been lovely to chat with you a big thank you to victoria and holly and if you haven't done so already make sure you pick up a copy of for thy great pain have mercy on my little pain it really is something special and victoria's event with sally at dragon hall was one of the most popular we've had in recent years If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find out more about the podcast, our programmes and subscribe to our newsletter over on the website nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation to us today over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Please do subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating and a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again, keep writing and I'll catch you on the next episode.